Welcome to the Frisian Advocate Podcast. I'm Angie DePoy, Education and Research Liaison for the Foundation. And I'm Scott Kellenhofer, co-founder and president of the Fenway Foundation for Frisian Horses. So before you guys delve into our first episode, which we know you're going to be very anxious to get to, we thought we would record this intro episode so that you can get an idea of who we are in, in the event that you may not know who we are. You might be wondering, why would I want to listen to this? So Scott and I got together and we thought, we're just going to give you guys some background on the foundation and let you know what we hope you'll get out of season one. So I kind of want to go backwards to start, I guess you could say. And um, I think for this, Scott, I'm just kind of, it's going to almost be like I'm interviewing you maybe a little bit. But um, there's, of course, a lot of people that we know because this is a very small community in, in Frisian horses. But who knows, maybe listening to this, they may have no idea who the Fenway Foundation is. So take us back to the beginning. Tell us, how did the foundation start? And you can go back as far as you want to, to expand on that and give us the detail, I think. People that know the story may not know all the details, and I think they'll find it very interesting. So just tell us, when was it and how it got started? Well, it goes back to, you know, we were into the Friesian community. We had a couple of incredible approved stallions in our barn. And uh, unfortunately, uh, Anton had already been retired uh, from breeding, but we had Nani, and he was still an active breeding stallion. And in 2010, we lost him. And that was... Uh, that was a painful experience. You had a deep connection with Nanning, right? Yeah, Nanning was uh, hes a special horse. Uh, my former business partner described, I asked her why we should acquire Nanning, and she, and she said he's got a presence unlike any other Frisian stallion in the world. He just commands your attention when he walks into the arena or wherever, wherever you see him. And I didn't, I didn't appreciate that until I, until I actually met him. It was at a photo shoot in California where I, where I really fell in love with him. And I talked to my former business partner and I said, you know, either you can, you can have him, you can buy me out or I'm going to buy you out. But one way or another, either he's going to become a part of my life or I'm going to divorce myself from him because I don't want to live a separate life. Don't want to live without him, right? He was exactly. just that. Incredible. And like every photo that you see of Nanning, and it's just him in this big, proud, bold pose with his head up. Like he was just, like you said, he just commanded presence. Like he was just kind of, look at me. It's just one of those things that you only see so often in a horse. It's very rare, I think. Well, he was, I tell this story maybe more than people need to know, but I tell this story about it. Maybe I lived four or 500 years too late. <laughs> and that I fantasized of being a knight, and Nani would be my horse. Yes. And he would be the horse that would carry me into battle, and he would be the horse that would carry me out. Yeah. And as I described it to to people, I said, Nani was, was a man's horse. He was that knight. He was big and bold, heavily boned, heavily muscled. And then we had Anton, and Anton was <laughs> kind of the opposite. I mean, Anton yes. was a... He was he was glamorous. He was Fabio. He was, and women loved him. Oh, women just fall all over Anton with his long hair and so on and so forth. But it was Nodding that actually was kind of my heart horse. If you guys hear Scott is a little, you can probably hear his emotions coming through in his voice. I don't think 
there's it's a rare occasion when you see Scott talk about nonning and not get emotional, not get choked up. I mean, that's how special their connection was. Well, yeah, thanks for <laughs> thanks for helping me. Get, you're, you're not helping. Okay. I just want people to understand that you're not like you're not just being quiet and kind of reserved. Like this is it's still all these years later, it's still very emotional for you. Well, you know, in in all honesty, when we when we lost Nonning, uh, a lot of people came up to me and they said, "Well, you're going to get another proof down." And, and I look him right in the eye and I'd say, "No, I lost my horse. He's gone, and I'll never be able to relive that experience with any other horse." So that's when Shelley and I, rather than stay in the commercial end of the of the Friesian community selling breedings and so on, uh, we decided to start the Fenway Foundation. And what we hoped in doing in doing that, we hoped to uh, create a foundation that would help the breed, help the owners, and help the horses that maybe have fallen on hard times. And I remember the first time I heard Case Rosemont speak at, at an AGM in Lexington, Kentucky. And his first opening line of the speech was, if the Friesian horse could talk, what would you say about the way he's being treated? And that stuck with me from... It's amazing how you hear phrases that you never forget. I have that on my all my emails. Yeah, I was going to say that's the signature quote is in your signature block of all your emails. Correct. And I always hope and pray that when my Frisians or the Frisians that have interacted in my life will look back and say, he did his best for us. He really tried to do his best for us. And that, that Frisian horse, if he could talk, he would say, I was glad that he was part of my life. So that was a <clears throat> that was that was a how Fenway started. Did you come up with this idea or Shelley or did you both look at each other and say it at the exact same time and tell us who Shelley is for those who don't know because for all of us like our our world kind of revolves around Shelley and I know she's more unseen but she's so special to us. Well absolutely and and I don't have any reservations in saying that she's the brains of the operation. I have the incredible luxury of being the front man for Fenway. But she's actually, when people ask me to make a decision, they say, I got to go talk to the boss. And <laughs> she and I will sit down and, and decide how we want to proceed. She manages the finances. She manages all the, all the other minutiae that doesn't grab a lot of attention. But if she wasn't there, uh, I, I don't even know if I'd have lights on. Oh my God, I would not want the job. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so she and I looked at each other and said, we got to give something back to this breed. And we thought that the foundation was a, was a wonderful idea, direction to take in the hope that uh, we could give something back. Now, 10 years down the road, I'm hoping that those goals will be achieved. I mean, there's, we've come a long ways and we're going to discuss that. But it's been a challenge. We started out with having three initiatives. It was research, health assistance, and then the rescue portion. And the rescue portion for a long time was kind of, was a very glamorous, I'll italicize glamorous part of our, of our operation because you would take these horses and you would, typically it would be a situation where there would be a, a surrender where someone would come along and say, well, I, I've fallen on our times. I can't afford to keep this horse or whatever it might be. And Fenway would take the horse and, and find a suitable 
a home for it. We've only had a few rescues, and rescues are a, a difference. What? Being. We've only had a few? You're selling yourself short then. Well, the, I guess what I'm saying is there's a difference between rescues and surrenders. We've had a lot of surrenders. Oh, yes. Well, that's true. That's true. By By rescue, you mean a seizure from like a law enforcement investigation, that sort of thing. Well, uh, the best example I can give you of a rescue is, is Gunnar. Uh, if you don't take this horse, I'm going to euthanize him. And that's, yeah. that's there's a been rescue. a few of those. Yes, there's been a few of those. <laughs> I seem to remember you and I getting in the truck and driving pretty much to Canada, like at the drop of a hat for one of yeah, those. <laughs> exactly. And, and every once in a while you get, you get the rescues. We've, we've gotten about, I think in excess of 60, uh, rescues slash surrenders and with the majority of them being surrenders. That part of it has been incredibly rewarding. Fenway, in our program, we bring the horses in, we rehab them if necessary, and find a, find a suitable home for them. But we always maintain a level of ownership of that horse. So if that horse is abused or the new owner falls on part-times or they don't want it. We have, I'll give you an example. We had one guy, our very first surrender, uh, send it to a place in Pennsylvania, and the horse developed uh, symptoms of colic, and the guy says, I don't want to pay for colic surgery. That was uh, pretty disgusting. That happens uh, every now and then over yeah. the years, yeah. And so we took the horse out of the operation, uh, away from him, and fortunately the horse did not require colic surgery. We placed it in another home, and the horse is thrived there and found a perfect home for the That horse was Duvesa and thrive there. And so every once in a while, you'll get those situations where you've got to pull a horse because the owner didn't. And I think we've had that, we've only had that experience twice out of 60 horses. I see people ask this question every now and then, or, or make this comment that they cannot believe a Frisian horse, which is, is just naturally just by being Frisian. It's it's a more rare horse. So it's it typically has some market value that's substantial. And people are always baffled by learning that they become surrendered or rescue, you know, scenarios with these horses. I mean, they, they cannot believe that, but it does happen. That's a great observation. And, and we were actually surprised that the numbers did rise to in excess of 60. And typically what happens in those situations is that people will get a hold of us and they'll say, because of our oversight, our continued oversight, and the fact that they're willing to, relatively speaking, donate the horse to Fenway and our continued oversight, that we ensure that that horse is going to have a good life for as long as the horse is healthy and viable and so on and so forth. And, and on an annual basis, Fenway will reach out to the, to the owners and say, how's the horse doing? And the owners will respond. And we're ensured that they continue to be well taken care of. And in a lot of cases, that's what—that's why people come to us and say, I want to surrender my horse to you because I want to ensure that in spite of the fact that I won't own him, I want to make sure that that horse is well taken care of. And that's part of our insurance to that individual is that that will, in fact, be the case. And if it's not, the horse gets pulled. We've had a situation in Georgia where we spent a substantial amount of money, legal fees, in pulling a horse. They didn't want us to take it, and we said, no, the horse is being, is being abused or is not living up to the contract, the agreement that we had in place, and we got to take it. And it ended up going to court, 
and eventually got the horse back. So that's very important. And it's kind of a, it ends up being, an, I know a lot of people that know me will say, there's a principle involved. You know, I can just you, see you with your fingers straight up in the air and that terse look on your face. Index to the sky, <laughs> index finger to the sky, saying there's a yes. principle involved. You agree to this, you're going to adhere to that, yes. to that contract. And, and yes, sometimes the uh, imposition of principle can get expensive. But yes. it's it's all done to ensure the what's in the best interest of the horse. That's right. kind of the bottom line. So apart from rescue, we also have another program which might be good to mention as far as, you know, physical horses coming to Fenway, and that's our long term care program for people that wanna make accommodations for their horses and their estate planning or wills. Yeah, we also have a section in our in the Fenway Foundation website where if there's individuals who, um, to ensure the long-term care, if something were to happen to them, if they were to depart prior to their horses, that the horses would come to Fenway and we would take care of them and find them the right home for them to reside. Sadly, uh, we don't have the, the wherewithal, maybe not the wherewithal, but we don't have the space to accommodate all the horses that might come to us. So we have to keep them moving through the process. Mm-hmm. There's limitations to how many horses we can have at our farm, not based on law or anything. Yeah, it's just we only have so much personnel and a lot of the horses that are there have special needs, right? Exactly, exactly. So we want to, to ensure that they get the, the right amount of care, the appropriate care we find the the appropriate adopting family and screen them and make sure the horse is going to be a successful in that environment. And we move that horse on. So yeah, fortunately, we haven't been asked to take on uh, several horses in that regard, but that option is out there for individuals who want to make sure that their horses are taken care of if something were to happen to them tragically. There's probably a hundred women who own horses right now that are thinking, gosh, that's maybe not a bad idea because that would be over one, it would be overwhelming for my spouse to how would I know for sure that they went to the best possible home? How would we keep up with them? You know, that sort of thing. So that crosses my mind because <laughs> you know my husband well. <laughs> yeah, I, I know it. And, and I think that, that between a spouse and the children, who may or may not be at home, and all of a sudden they've got this anti-italicized burden of uh, liquidating the assets or moving these horses on, and they do it. And and, and unfortunately, maybe the, the time is of the essence in those situations where they've got to move the horses promptly, at least if you have a, an estate plan in place that says, in case of my demise uh, or departure, send these horses to Fenway and I can rest assured that they will be very appropriately taken care of. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about rescue. What are the other areas? Well, you know, we we talk about how Fenway has evolved over time. And I know when we first got involved in this, uh, our previous equine consultant or Dr. Fox, who was part of our team, Determined, and it probably was common knowledge at the time, but we, we focused on what we at Fenway called the big four, 
And these were genetic issues that were prevalent within the breed that there hadn't been a lot of research done on them, but there was an understanding that the Friesen was challenged with hydrocephalus, dwarfism, megasophagus, and aortic rupture. And we did our best to research it, and I'll italicize that because it was in its kind of that 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 concept or that learning about those big four was kind of in its embryonic stage of, yeah, these guys have problems, we don't know how prevalent it is. Well, eventually the KFPS developed uh, genetic testing for hydrocephalus and dwarfism, uh, but uh, megasophagus and, and aortic rupture continue to be an issue within the breed. And so we started out with some research in that area, but it was it was very difficult to break the ice on that because it was kind of uh, an unknown entity in the equine community. And the University of Ghent did some research, and they determined that there was collagen-related issues within the breed and that those issues contributed to the uh, megasophagus aortic rupture and, and, as we'll learn as we continue to talk, to the gastroparesis that has now become somewhat of an issue within the breed. So our research has evolved from the point of, of not knowing to the point of learning and aligning ourselves with some terrific researchers in both the United States at the University of Kentucky and at Wageningen University in the Netherlands. And what's so uh, encouraging about the team that we have been so blessed to be associated with is is we're we're working with the people, not that read the books about genetic studies and genetic flaws. We're working with the people that wrote the books. These are the guys that are writing the books that are used in a, in college classes to teach about genetics. Ernest Bailey at the University of Kentucky is one one person that comes to mind, and Dr. Ted Kleefflesh. It's a it's Cabal a flesh, I think. Thank you. Okay, I, I, <laughs> that's I, harder I, than my name, though. Yeah, okay. No, okay, that's uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Dr. Graves, who a lot of people in the in the, in the fauna community know, uh, is also a part of our research team at at UK. We're working with Dr. Bart Ducro, or Ducro in, in the Netherlands, and also with Mariah Sietzma, who's now a PhD candidate working on her research in regard to issues within the breed. So the team that Fenway is, is so fortunate to be working with is probably the, the most learned people in the world in regard to Friesen research. And we have a dedicated researcher at the University of Kentucky as well. Correct. And David is just, he just got his doctorate and now is working directly with Fenway on the Megasophagus project. And we have contracted him for a, a minimum of two years to be a part of our research team. And hopefully we will solve this Megasophagus issue prior to that and have him moving on to other challenges within the breed. But again, we've been just blessed to have these individuals working with us on these projects. And the word that comes to mind that will ensure the sustainability of the breed in the long term. And that's our goal. And it's a it's a good thing that we went straight to the top because, boy, did we find out how difficult just megasophagus is to uh, to study and to, to find the causative gene variant for. I mean, oh, my goodness. I can imagine if we had started somewhere else, we would have been in trouble. So, I'm not embarrassed to say this. It's probably common knowledge in the community is that my level of patience is really thin. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
And and research is not for a patient person. No, it's like I would describe just studying something, you know, that's it can sometimes be a marathon, but I I consider genetic research like the ultra marathon Ironman times a million type of endurance race. Like you're racing against the clock, but you you have to have this immense amount of patience because it just takes so much time. It just takes so much time. There are points in time during our research that we've we've had opportunities that have presented themselves and or that have come to our onto the table and says, Okay, we've we've narrowed it down. We may have it. Yeah. <laughs> this could be it. And then bang. No, yeah. that ain't it. Yeah, it I'm ends, never saying it, that again. <laughs> yeah. And it ends it ends up being a most times it's two steps forward and three back. Yeah. And then every once in a while it's three steps forward and two back. And and you slowly gain on it. And in spite of how frustrated I might sound, I'm pretty confident that we're gaining on it. It's become so. it's spectacularly more complicated than any of us ever thought it was. But we're not deterred in that frustration. It inspires us to continue because we know that if, if it's not figured out, we have a we're problem. Yeah, we're, we yeah. might be in trouble. So it's it's been a somewhat of a rewarding experience, but I, I know that someday down <laughs> one day say, one day it will be <laughs> someday down the road we're going to be popping champagne bottles, pep champagne corks. I don't and, know. And, we don't drink. We're not really champagne drinkers. Well, It'd whatever. be bourbon for you, well, probably. Okay, and and toasting <laughs> our success because it'll be a a wonderful day for the breed and for the researchers who have devoted so much time to it, and it'll be a wonderful day for Fenway in, in knowing that. We contributed something to this incredible breed. Okay, let's talk about education. Education. We have, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think that these podcasts are part of our educational process. Definitely, definitely. And you've been the driving force behind this, this concept of putting together a podcast. As the education liaison, you're confronted with countless calls on a daily basis in regard to issues that are, that, owners, and sometimes even veterinarians have to understand that is going on with their horse. There's a concept that every horse is different, and, <laughs> and, and I understand that, and there's also the concept that they're all kind of the same, and the Frisian is, is unique in and of itself. And we first learned that when we did a way a long time ago, when we did a blood study and determined that the, the blood values in a Frisian horse are, are different than that of a, of a standard equine mm -hmm. breed. Right. And we determined that if you draw blood on a Frisian, your initial reaction is, boy, this horse is, is anemic. That's kind of the way they are. That's kind of, when you look at the bell shaped curve, that level, that low level of iron is kind of inherent in this breed. Yeah. They have unique blood values. Exactly. And so it's, it was helpful to help owners and veterinarians understand that when you're looking at these blood values, it's not a cause for alarm. This is the way this horse has evolved. And now, after all these years of being involved with with this breed on a level with a variety of different educators in, in the, around the world, we're able to offer, and Angie, through her connections in the community, is able to offer advice, but also understanding, and, and we understand this, is that we offer this advice not as veterinarians, and the horse is not standing in front of us. So these are right. this is information based on on our experience within the breed, every horse 
and the malady that it presents is somewhat unique. But in some cases, it's kind of a common thing for a freeze. Right, right. And, and so we try and put that information together so that we can help a, an inquiring individual to understand that this isn't cause for alarm or I think you should call your vet and I think you should get your vet out there because something's going on. Right. And there's so many, we've tried to really put out a broad base of different types of education. So we have recently redone our website within the last year. So we have a an entire library of articles, and I would say 99% of them are, are based off of research papers. So typically, like what we'll do is, you know, we keep track of all the veterinary journals and when those come out. So if there's new in, or important research, we, we try to write an article to cover that. Things that are specific to the breed, we try to cover with educational articles because some people like to read and that's like, that's just the way they like to educate themselves. We also, this year we started doing webinars, which I love webinars because they're, they're such a great platform, I think, for education because some people are visual learners. So with that webinar, you get to listen to typically a veterinarian and there's this beautiful presentation and it, and that kind of pulls it all together for some people and it's interactive. So you can ask questions. This podcast, of course, is, is another way. There'll be some education on this. It's not solely educational focus for the podcast, but, um, and then we have our Facebook page. So we're out there in a variety of different ways for you guys to, you know, get education. And then, of course, like Scott said, we get a lot of phone calls, phone calls, Facebook messages, emails. So just over time, people have begun to reach out to us when they have a question. And I think the questions they kind of have, there's kind of categories that we see a lot of questions about. Nutrition, What? how do I feed a Frisian? Because they are different. If you feed a Frisian like you feed a thoroughbred, you'll end up with some problems, right? Uh, mites, CPL, those sort of things. Things that you may not really have a good grasp on if you're a first-time Frisian owner. So I love the education part. I'm very passionate about that. So I'm happy that we're we're doing so much in the education realm and helping as many people as we can. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we've kind of talked about what we do, but I would love, you know, because I think you're you're very well known in the community and and I am somewhat too, but we have other members of our team that are newer or just keep a lower profile than we do. So I would love for you to, you know, run everybody through who our team is. So they have a really good idea of, you know, who actually is at the Fenway Foundation. Well, from the perspective of discussing the associates of Fenway, we've been incredibly blessed from our inception to have some very dedicated people that have been a part of Fenway for the last going on 13 years. And uh, of course, there's Shelly and I, the founders, and and again, she's a more critical entity to this operation than I am, and I'm not ashamed to say that. I don't say that with any light, any you know, lightness. I, I appreciate everything that she contributes because it, she keeps such a low profile that you that sometimes you forget about that and how important uh, she is. Uh, also, part of Fenway is Becca McCartney, and uh, Becca's our equine manager, and she interfaces with our rescued and surrendered horses. She also handles the inquiries in regard to people that are that are interested in surrendering their horses. We were incredibly lucky. So lucky. 
Yeah. <laughs> so lucky. No kidding. Do you and remember it, when we were getting in resumes and we were like, oh my God, this resume is amazing. And then, and then you said, I don't think she'll, she won't want to come work here. Why I, I, would we'll, she, yeah. Why, why would she come and want to work here? What, what would compel her <laughs> to leave her operation and come and work for Fenway? And because Becca was part of a, of a huge, a uh, very reputable, spectacularly reputable uh, Morgan operation in upstate New York. And uh, we had put out an opportunity for to hire somebody, and she responded. And I and we interviewed her, and I'm... We were blown away. <laughs> yeah, and, we, and, and I got done with the interview, and I looked at her and said, well, okay, who else is on the list? Because I don't know why, you know, whatever, but she was interested. And I think the part that interested Becca the most was the the ability to interface with uh, rescues and surrenders. She has a huge heart. Oh, so. so and big. she loves bringing your horse around yes. and rehabbing it and watching it, watching it thrive and watching his personality change. And it's amazing. She's it such amazing. a gifted trainer too. Well, there's a video on, when you go to Fritz's story, our video link on, on the foundation website, if you go to Fritz's story, you can watch her, Body language communicate with Fritz. They were talking about a horse that had a horrible, horrible, horrible life. And he was came to Fenway after he was uh, uh, confiscated by uh, the authorities for being abused. And uh, he was sent off to one location where he couldn't uh, adapt. He was sent off to another location where he couldn't adapt to the new environments. And he came back to Fenway, and we were going to send him off. And I said, no, this is Fritz's home now. But he still hadn't blossomed into what we all know Friesians have within themselves. He wasn't very people-oriented at the time, right? He was kind of just walled off emotionally, I think, is what it was. He had no, he had people. All they've been has been jerks to me, and I have no use for the news for them. It was kind of, he wasn't aggressive. He no, just was, just I have no use for him. Yeah, yeah. indifferent. And when you watch that video and see how Fritz just blossomed under her care and under her tutelage and under her kind hand, it's amazing. It's amazing. And now she's done that with all the horses at Fenway. They all have a, they all understand her. They all respect her. They all understand the body language that she, that she has with them. And we've them. had some doozies. Oh, <laughs> we've yeah. We've had some yeah, doozies. Yeah. <laughs> but Becca is, you guys, you guys, if you haven't met her, She's she's not terribly tall or anything like that, and she has such a kind voice. But she can she can handle the most unruly stallion you've ever met, and be so polite about it. It's it's quite something to watch. Yeah, she's she's amazing, and and her patience. See, that's uh, that's why I have yeah, people the patience. To do this. She has the patience that that I lack again, and it's it's amazing to watch her work with these horses because they they know that they're going to be treated fairly. And life, life is good. And it's just amazing to watch. Also part of it, obviously, is Angie. And, and, and I think that it, that while you dismiss yourself by saying people know me, I think that it's important for them to know a little bit of your background. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> well, I'll be, I'll be nice. All right. This, will, and, this wasn't in the outline <laughs> for the show, Scott. <laughs> well, anyway, Angie is our, is our education research liaison. And she's, she was another, and we were incredibly, Lucky to have Angie uh, come to Fenway. She's a retired veteran and had worked in the military intelligence and, and left that job to come to work for us. Now, 
that's pretty flattering as an employer, and I don't like to use that term, but as an employer, to have somebody leave such a, a solid job and say, I, I want to roll my dice with you guys. And we've been incredible beneficiaries of what she's brought to the table. She's our frontline person in regard to the health assistance requests and so on and so forth. She's our frontline in regard to the research liaison with uh, Wagonen and the University of Kentucky. And she has a tremendous relationship with all the researchers in that they respect her. And there are, there are no stupid questions coming from Angie, let me tell you. <laughs> I don't know about that, but... <laughs> well, when we get into these meetings, I'm the guy that says, you know, you guys are talking way over my head and I wish we had more pictures versus all this verbiage. <laughs> that is I, true. <laughs> You do love a good picture in a presentation. Hey, come on. A picture's (laughs) worth a thousand words. Come on. Okay. Anyway, and also she's a facilitator of these podcasts. This was her idea to to start the podcast. And and it's all these efforts to to do outreach and promote the image of the Fenway Foundation, helping people understand that we're there to help them. And and she's become an incredibly knowledgeable source for both uh, Frisian owners and in many situations, veterinarians who may have limited experience in dealing with the, some of the unique qualities or characteristics of this breed. So we've been really lucky to, to land those two as, as direct employees of the foundation. Now, kind of indirect employees in that, you know, is, is we have also have a, a barn staff that works that isn't quite as active in, in Fenway, uh, in the foundation, but they also are overseeing, have some management and care of the Frisian horses, and that's one of them is Katie Brittnacher, a very nice young lady who uh, who started with, has been with us for going on two years now, and she's she's uh, she's young and very very hungry to learn. She has an incredible level of knowledge when it comes to working with horses. Spectacular again, another person that's spectacularly patient in working with the horses, and and is and is invaluable in being Becca's partner when they're working with the horses and, and with. A variety of personalities that these horses present. Also on weekends, we've got Ellie Pomeraining, and we also have Sequoia Eckstein. And both of these young ladies are incredibly valued in what they contribute on the weekends and so on and so forth. The downside is, is that, and it, it's painful, is that uh, they're young and in high school and eventually, right. very shortly, they'll be going off to college. And Fenway has a policy. It's something that I learned from Shelley's dad, who was a uh, owner of a company, an entrepreneur that started a company, is that people that work at your company are part of, are become family. And it's going to be painful when uh, Sequoia and, and Ellie come to us and say, uh, it's time for me to leave. And then you end up saying, okay, that's, first of all, that's hard to take. And A, it's hard to take. And B, now we've got to find somebody to replace right. you. And our mentality in, in employees is that I like to have employees on a long term. I want them to be a feel like they're a part of our family on the long term. And so when Sequoia and Ellie are gone, it's going to be kind of a dark day. And then the search will begin to find that right person yeah, that's, that's going to tough. fit in. It is. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you remember a couple of years ago when I said, I think we should do a podcast. And you were like, I think you've said, what's a podcast? <laughs> Maybe Thank that you. was your Thank, response. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm, yeah I'm, I'm technologically <laughs> challenged. And I'm, so again, I was just explaining to, to you, like, well, it's it's not too hard. Like, you get on the microphone and you talk to people and you record it. You know, I, I think I kind of 
oversold how easy it would be, right? Because, you know, it's taken, taken us a while to, to stand this up and scheduling interviews is, is really the long pole in the tent sometimes. But, um, I'm sure you thought I was crazy, but here we are. So that just proves that sometimes you do listen to my ideas. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> I'm just teasing you. Okay. I'm teasing you because I know you listen to my ideas a lot. Sometimes it takes you a minute to process my idea, but I've got some ideas past you, you know? No, no, I, I'm not ashamed to say that, you know, being the age I am and, and not, not ashamed of that either, but being the age I am, sometimes when a, a new idea is thrown at me, it takes a, it takes a while for me to say, why should we do that? And then over time, I'll process and say, yeah, that's a good idea, but I have to take a few minutes to, more than a few minutes sometimes, uh, maybe a week or two, say, yeah, okay, let's do that. When you talk to me about the podcast, unfortunately, uh, when our listeners listen to the podcast, they'll, they'll that I'm kind of in the shadows of the podcast. I will, I, I'm not front and center on those. I'm, I'm pretty much laying back. And sometimes when the, when our guests will ask, will make a statement, I'll ask a question and hopefully they're, they're, it's an educated question that maybe our listeners would appreciate hearing. And that's about my level of interaction on the podcast. And I, I'm glad for that. <laughs> And and so if it appears to be the Angie show, it is the Angie show with no. Scott being the, the color guy, you know, and, and I'll add. What's the other guy called? This is like a sports term, right? Because my husband tried to explain this to me because sometimes I'm when I'm guy. watching. Okay. Yeah. But what's the other guy called? The announcer. Oh, well, okay. There you go. I'm the, I'm the announcer. You're the color guy, right? Yeah, exactly. And you're, you're Joe Buck. You're Joe Buck and I'm Troy Aikman. Okay. I'm not Troy Aikman, but. That's kind of where I'm, for those of you who know football and football color. Is, okay. And I'm not trying to say I'm Troy Aiken. I'm just saying that I'm just the guy that adds maybe a, a little bit and not, and not even, and he does analysis. I just comment along the way here, something beyond, oh my God. Oh, oh dear. I, I never no thought of that. No kidding. What? So I'm, not, <laughs> I'm, I'm not that guy. I'm, I had a little bit more than that. At least I hope I had a little bit more than that. So yeah. So the, the concept of a podcast is fine as long as I don't have to carry the ball. Well, for me, I think and we all experience this, Shelly, you, Becca, me, all of us, we talk to so many people, whether whether it's people contacting us with inquiries or we're at events. And one of the things that I've noticed over the many years is that people love to tell their stories about their horses. And there's just so many interesting stories. You know, it, it doesn't matter if you're a breeder or a recreational rider or driver or Maybe you're somebody that's involved in research, or maybe you're somebody that's involved in the Frisian community in an administrative level or, or an important position at the KFPS or Fauna or, or wherever. But I just think it's it's just a way to capture these great stories. So for, for us, the podcast is less about, you know, health education. You know, we have other avenues for that, but this is just more of a tell your story, you know, and we we've recorded episodes already for this season. We have had some amazing conversations when you say, Scott, like there were times where I thought I would cry. There were so many laughs. There was there were times where I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they're telling us this. It's just been really cool. It has been. It's been uh, and we've had uh, two interviews with some from individuals in England. And it's been uh, very inspiring to hear these stories. And when you hear them, sometimes, just as Angie said, Sometimes they're very inspiring and say, my God, what a, what an incredible experience. And sometimes 
they'll bring a tear to your eye because not every story has a happy ending. But it's always, it's always when you when you look at the breed, and it's a phrase that I use a lot. I said the Frisian horse gives so much and asks so little, and people see that when I say this. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it because they they don't ask for much, but they'll be there for you whenever you want them. They'll be right in your pocket, and that's part of the charismatic quality of the breed that is so endearing. And that really comes out in these interviews, too, wouldn't you say, like when we've talked to some of these owners and, and just people that have had their, their own unique experience with Frisians, that always comes up in these interviews where this breed is just so charismatic, they're so people-orientated, and when you hear somebody talk about their experience with the Frisian compared to another breed, it really comes through how special these horses are. And for me, that's a joy to hear that always come through in an interview in, in everybody's own unique way. It's amazing. It's not to drag this out, but I, I tell the story of the first two horses that Shelly and I got were Tennessee walking horses, which is, you know, a horse that, a gated horse, almost yeah, anybody can horses. ride it. They're great horse, wonderful horses. Anybody can ride a gated horse, right? And that's exactly what we needed. And we fell in love with reasons and we got some reasons on the farm and, and we still had our two walkers. And we'd have people come to visit the farm and we would go out into the pastures and walk the fence lines and that the walkers would just stand out in the, in the field and graze and the Frisians, they would always come to the fence line and say, Hey, people. Yeah. Hey, what you doing? I, I want to get to know you. I, I'm intrigued by you. I can, can we be friends? And, and the Frisians were so, it was so incredible to watch that interaction every time. Every time you'd, you'd bring a visitor to the farm, the freezers would come to the fence line and say, hey, how's it going? What's your name? Kind of a thing. And it was, and it was so uh, inspiring. And I will freely admit that my knowledge of other equine breeds is, is very limited. But even in that limited perspective, the Frisians were incredibly unique in regard to their interactions and, mm -hmm. and with humans. It just was totally different experience. And, with, and J.D. and Dare are walkers. They're wonderful horses. Don't get me wrong. But the Frisians had this, had this quality of saying, you know, of interest and enthusiasm and charisma that, that was unmatched. Yeah. I think everybody that's listening to this right now knows exactly what you mean. Exactly what you mean. They're just special. So guys, we, we hope what you'll get out of season one is just what we've described. There'll be a little bit of storytelling, people telling their individual stories, their experiences with their Frisian horses. We've got some guests that are going to bring you some news from the, the community. We've got some guests from the KFPS, people out there that are riding, driving, competing, training, the whole gamut, family operations, etc. So we hope that you will enjoy these stories. We wanted to bring them to you so that you're Frisian world will expand a little bit. You'll get to know some of these people just through their stories. Maybe maybe you'll hear something that will intrigue you or will help you connect in some way with either the people that we've spoken to or their ideas and their experiences as well. So we hope you will enjoy season one and uh, we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the Frisian Advocate.